Today we are studying Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. One of the highlights of my year has been teaching through Ephesians um, to the teens on Wednesday nights. And uh, Joe has asked um, throughout this year if I could share some of the fruit of that study with the rest of our church family. Um, So this is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to start off by sharing the context of this passage, and we're going to read it together. I'm going to suggest what I think is the main point of this text, and I'm going to work through the passage in two simple sections, and I'm going to close with some questions for reflection at the end. Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians uh, when he was in his early 60s. He was probably nearing the end of his life. Um, At the time he wrote this letter, he was actually imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing to believers who live in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. This was one of the largest cities um, in the ancient world at the time. Paul had extensive history with these believers. Um, He actually lived there for three years, preaching and teaching. While he lived in Ephesus, he did some incredible miracles, um, including casting out demons. Um, He did lots of preaching, lots of teaching of the gospel. And uh, during his time there, he developed strong, close, personal relationships with the believers in the city. Paul's letter to the Ephesians has been divided into um, six chapters. First half of the letter, um, chapters one through three, um, teaches about what the gospel does. To put it simply, this is how I've been summarizing it for the teens, to put it simply, the gospel does two things. The gospel saves people and the gospel unites people. And when that happens, a third thing happens. And the gospel saves people and unites people. Those people join together and become the church. The gospel produces the church. And what happens when the church is formed, the ecclesia, this, this, called out, this group of called out people, uh, this people gather together, um, they do what the, Jesus wants the church to do. And that's actually what the second half of the letter of Ephesians is about. So the first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, describe uh, what the gospel does in saving people and uniting people, people who would have been enemies with each other, now because of Jesus, they're actually family. And then the second half of the book, chapters four through six, unpacks what the church does, what it's supposed to accomplish, and, uh, and how it affects individuals. Church is a community of people in which the church gathers together and the members of the church speak the truth and love to one another. And as the church um, does that, it grows together in truth and love and individual lives are changed to be more like Jesus as a result. Church is a community of people who grow together in truth and love, whose individual lives are changed as a result to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would indeed do what we just sang about, that you would take your truth and you would plant it deep in us. We pray, God, that you would shape us and fashion us in your likeness. We pray, God, this morning, that you would renew our minds. God, indeed, that is what this very passage teaches us we need. I pray, God, that you would help me to communicate clearly, help me to accurately present the content and the tone of this passage. God, please do your work in hearts this morning, including mine. Be glorified in us, through us, by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. 
Paul is writing to these saved, united believers in the church, and he gives them a strong, sharp exhortation to live a changed, transformed life. He starts off by saying, this I say, this I testify in the Lord. You see there in verse 17. We're going to get into it in a second, but right at the start, Paul is actually speaking with tremendous authority and seriousness. He's basically saying, I know the mind of Christ. I know how he wants us to live. I'm telling it to you. I'm insisting upon it. It really matters. So the very tone that he's striking is one of some of authority, but also seriousness. Let's see what he has to say. He says, verse 17, so this I say, testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're hopelessly confused. They're separated, excluded, alienated from the life of God because of, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, because of their hardened hearts. Verse 19, they have become callous, it's insensitive and unfeeling, and they have given themselves up to sensuality or self-indulgence and sinful pleasures. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's point is that Christians change. If being a Christian has not changed your life in any significant ways, I do not think that you are a Christian. That's Paul's point here. Paul's point is if you have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have seen your sin and his glory, if you've seen your helplessness and you've seen his power to save you, if you've turned from living life your own way and turned to following Jesus as the only way, you will not stay the same. Christians change because Jesus changes us. That's the whole point. Jesus changes the way Christians live. Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God. If you have learned Christ, your life will show it. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He said, our conduct should always be to us something which is inevitable in view of what we believe. And I, I put that up there because I want to clarify what I mean by what I say in the main point when I say Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God. Because you might read that and it, and it might almost sound like a threat. Like Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God or else. And that's not what I mean here. What I mean here is the sense in which Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, in that Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God because it's inevitable based on what Jesus has done in them. It's inevitable. If you have truly been saved, God has started a work in you that he has promised that he will finish. Um, It's as Paul said to the Philippians. He said, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. So let there be no doubt, those Jesus saves, he sanctifies. In the rest of the letter, Paul is going to work out what specifically changes in a Christian's life. Here in this section we're studying, Paul isn't dealing with um, the specifics, like the, the how Christians change and, and what specifically changes. He's dealing more with why Christians change. And he gives two reasons. There's two reasons why Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God. And these are two points. These are two sections. We'll work through these, and then I'll close with some questions for reflection. Number one, Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God because, Christian, you are not who you used to be. And number two, Christian, you are now a disciple of Jesus. Christian, your life should be changing. The way you live should be clearly distinct from everyone around you in a pagan culture. Look at verse 17. Paul says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, you used to live like them, but no more. You are not who you used to be. You had enough of that life, no more. Paul's point here is to underscore just how morally bankrupt and corrupt life without God is. And he does so in three ways. By pointing out that life without God is hopelessly confusing, hopelessly wicked, and hopelessly unsatisfying. I'm going to look at these one at a time. Life without God is hopelessly confusing. Look at verse 17. Again, he says, Testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. The word futility there carries the idea of emptiness, purposelessness, foolishness, worthlessness. In other words, their thinking, their worldview, it's bankrupt. In fact, Paul goes on to say that they are darkened in their understanding. They understand neither their spiritual condition nor their own moral behavior. Verse 18 says they're ignorant. They don't know what they don't know. They're in the dark. They're the blind leading the blind. They don't think this of themselves, but this is the truth. If you reject the God of the Bible, you are reduced to absurdity. The world cannot and it does not make sense apart from the God of the Bible. We see this in history. We see this in current headlines. Uh, In many cultures around the world today, like in Paul's day, we see darkened minds literally carving and fashioning inanimate idols out of wood and stone and iron and then falling down and worshiping them. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans about. In fact, he actually says almost the exact same thing to the Romans as he's saying to the Ephesians here. In Romans, he says, chapter 1, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they, and again, this is almost exactly what he's saying to the Ephesians, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So darkened hearts, darkened minds. Verse 22, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So that's a little bit outside of our immediate context in our culture. It was true in Paul's day. It's certainly true all around the globe today that darkened minds show that they are ignorant, that they're spiritually blind by taking wood 
and metal and fashioning into something and then thinking that that has some type of spiritual power over the circumstances of life. But it's not just in cultures outside of our own. It's also in our own culture. We also see the spiritual blindness on display in the madness of atheistic evolution. Darkened minds believing and insisting. Think about the logic of this. That this entire world came from nothing. Because of nothing. Guided by nothing. And ultimately means nothing. We see this blindness on display right now in the madness of the gender identity revolution. That in our country, a biological male can identify as a female and participate in society in every way. And to question it is to invite being mocked, canceled, deplatformed, and possibly attacked. Or that in most states, children can undergo gender reassignment treatments. We live in the day that the emperor has no clothes. It's madness. And it's because of the futility of their minds, because they're darkened in their understanding. And Paul is saying, Christian, this is, this is your rearview mirror. This is where you used to be. This is, used to be the road that you were traveling on. Maybe you were just starting down this road. Maybe you were well down this road. But it's in the past. God has turned you around. He goes on and he reminds them that it's more than that. Not only is life without God hopelessly confusing, life without God is also hopelessly wicked. Verse 19, he says, they have become callous. means insensitive and unfeeling. They've given themselves up to sensuality, self-indulgence and sinful pleasures, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says that the reason for the ignorance is because of their hardness of heart. Their hearts have been hardened by repeated decisions to go against God's moral code. In other words, what, what Paul is describing here is not just this is, the inherent natural condition of humanity, but rather this is the result of the direction that humanity naturally goes in in its rebellion against God, that in repeated decisions against God's moral code, there's this hardening effect. And now they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that's why we as a culture, we have 50 shades of gray. It's why the internet is bending under the weight and mass of pornography. It's why the top secular songs being promoted to teenagers are outrageously sexually explicit. It's why sex trafficking flourishes around the globe and in our own state. It's why a local church near us felt obligated to include this statement in their core beliefs. Members must resist and refrain from any and all sexual acts outside marriage, including, but not limited to, adultery, fornication, incest, zoophilia, pornography, prostitution, masturbation, voyeurism, pedophilia, exhibitionism, sodomy, polygamy, polyamory, sologamy, or same-sex sexual acts. Now, I'm not going to define all those words. We're not going to be discussing what they are, but I think it serves a point. I think it illustrates Paul's point that the world has given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But again, Paul's point is, Christian, that's not you anymore. You're not on that road anymore. So life without God is hopelessly confusing. It's hopelessly wicked. Life without God is also hopelessly unsatisfying. 
Why is it that the Gentiles are greedy to practice every kind of impurity? It's because sin doesn't satisfy. They're chasing wind. It's emptiness. It's like the law of diminishing returns. It's this ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing pleasure. It's like a drug addiction. It's madness. It's stupid, unfeeling, unthinking, and, and devastating. What hard drugs do to the brain, unrestrained sinful indulgence does to the soul. And it always leaves the user broken, crushed, mutilated, and empty. That's what sin does. Sin always destroys. Sin never satisfies. But that is not what Jesus is like. The more I know Jesus, the more satisfying I find him to be. Sin is like salt water. It looks cool, cold, and refreshing. But it is a poison that fails to quench your thirst. It just makes you more thirsty. And so Jesus invites us to drink of the living water. Because whoever comes to Jesus will never be thirsty again. It's a song that we learned a couple of months ago expresses. My heart desires to find the prize that truly satisfies. It searches long through wealth or fame, but finds just empty lies. This journey leads to the only one who's meant to meet my need. His name is Jesus, King of Kings. Through him, I have been freed. I just want to say, if you are here and you are exploring Christianity, maybe you're trying out church, maybe you're actually wrestling through what you believe, I want to acknowledge that for the past seven to ten minutes, what I've shared, it could come across as extreme. You could be thinking, but Greg, you just described most people in the world as desperately and hopelessly wicked and confused, as desperate. Sure, some people are like that, but most normal people I know, they have their lives together. You named the worst examples in society. Why didn't you name the best examples? You didn't mention the fact that there are many people who don't believe like you, who live moral, upstanding lives, and they honestly do more good for the community than the Christians. If you're thinking that, I just want to say that is a good question, and I think there's a clear answer. Paul is describing here a metaphorical path. Uh, That's why he says to things in chapter 4, verse 1, he says to Christians, um, I urge you to walk, to, to walk, live your life in a manner worthy of, of what Jesus has done for you. Here in this passage, he's saying um, to Christians, you should no longer walk as the surrounding unbelieving pagan culture does. He's, he's picturing a road, two different roads actually. A road that the world in opposition against God is going down, and then the road when you have turned away from your sins, submitted to Jesus, following Jesus, he's picturing two different roads. And I just want to say that if, if that is a question that came to mind, I think it's a good question. It's a question I came up with as I was working through the passage. I just want to suggest that what Paul is doing is he's describing this, this metaphorical path um, in He's saying, looking down the road, describing a group that's, maybe they're like 50 miles down the road. This is a road in rebellion against God, in abandonment from God's design, way down there, really far down the road. There's some extreme examples of what happens when you abandon God's design. And their behavior, viewed from great distance, it does seem rather extreme compared to people who maybe. They're not living for Jesus. They're very open about that. But they're moral people. They're, they're, they're 
good people, right? They, they're not that far down the road. And there's like this big contrast between the people who are way down there versus the people right here. I just want to say two things. First, to those who are the farthest down the road, the ones who are way down there, who are, whose lives are the extremes of depravity and corruption and perversion, Jesus is mighty to save. Nobody has gone so far that they are out of his reach. And Paul is clearly indicating to the church, some of you were like this. He says, you must no longer live like this. You were like this, but not anymore. Jesus rescued them. He turned their lives around. He set them on a new path. And so if you feel like you're too far gone, or you feel like, actually, I feel like you just described my tribe, I just want to tell you, you're not too far. You too can call on Jesus in faith to save you. He will. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. To those who are not that far down the road, who have good morals, who believe in working hard, earning an honest living, being a good neighbor, doing good for other people, but who don't think that they need Jesus to be a part of their lives to do that, I want to suggest that you are in just as much danger because your good deeds could deceive you into thinking that you're okay. But in reality, you are on the same road that has the same destination. You're on the same road away from God. The destination at the end of the road is condemnation in hell because you refuse to submit to Jesus, the one who made you, the one who owns you, the one who has blessed you with life and good things, and the one who reigns over you, and you are still in rebellion against him. You're saying, I don't need you, which is absurd. He made you. He's sustaining you. Everything comes from him. And I just want to say, whether you are far down the road or you're close by, you need to turn to Jesus today. And I also want to say that if this is something that you'd be interested in talking more about, I'm serious about this. I would love to talk with you. If you're unsure if you're a Christian, I would love to talk with you. I would love to meet with you. Um, I put my contact information on the screen. Um, If you have a bulletin, my phone number, my email address are on the last page in the bulletin. I'm serious about this. If you are unsure if you're a Christian, this is something you're really working through. I would love, it would be the highest privilege if I got a chance to talk with you about these things. I would love to meet with you, talk with you, and try to help you figure things out. Whether you're far down the road or whether you're pretty close to God's design, but just apart from Jesus, you're in equal danger, but the gospel is mighty to save. But Paul's point here in this passage is that Christians change because Jesus changes us. That's the whole point. Jesus changes the way that Christians live. Christians must live changed lives that reflect the holiness of God. If you have learned Christ, your life will show it. The reason why your life changes is fundamentally because you are not who you used to be. But there's a second reason. Your life must also change because, Christian, you are now a disciple of Jesus. Yes, life without God. It's hopelessly confusing, wicked, unsatisfying. But in sharp contrast, Paul says in verse 20, that is not the way you learn Christ. And here Paul summarizes what makes believers like us personal disciples of Jesus. Look at verses 20 to 21. We have, as believers, we have learned Christ, we have heard Christ, and we have been taught in Christ. And I don't want you to miss this. The believers that Paul is writing to, they never laid eyes on Jesus. They never heard his voice. And yet Paul is saying, you have learned him. 
Not just facts about him, not just what he did, not just who he is, not just what he expects. You have learned him. The risen, living King Jesus has encountered you in the gospel. You have heard him speak to you through the gospel. And in responding to the gospel, you now know him. Not just know about him, you know him. You know him in a personal relationship. Brian Chappell remarks that there is an immediacy of expression in Paul's words, as though there is no intermediary in, in the truth about Jesus. In other words, somebody speaking on Jesus' behalf. Like, I heard the gospel, but I didn't hear it from Jesus. I heard from his messenger. Well, in a sense, that's true. But what this is getting at is Jesus speaks through his messengers, through his word, directly to us. He communicates himself. This Jesus that we worship is not merely a historical figure or a religious concept. He is real and living, and by his truth, his spirit testifies of his reality in our lives, not as a history lesson, but as the truth of a living personality. We can have a relationship with the one who created all things and loves us eternally. This goes so far beyond just making a decision for Jesus or asking Jesus to come into your heart. This is a lifelong personal relationship with Jesus, commitment to Jesus, marked by continual learning and continual life change. Paul is personal even in how he says, verse 21, you were taught in him, as the truth is, in Jesus. Paul is very personally referring to the historic, crucified, now risen Jesus of Nazareth, who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That Jesus He's not even using the title for Jesus Christ. In fact, it's very rare that Paul would speak of Jesus apart from his title as Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, or Lord Jesus Christ. But here he's saying very personally, I'm talking about the historic Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one that you know the truth is in him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And you have encountered this truth. It's Jesus that that's who we know, that's who we've heard, that's who we've been taught. And this really is the thrust of Paul's argument. Christians must live changed lives because they're not who they used to be and because they are now personal disciples of Jesus. Paul specifically identifies three things every disciple must do as we follow Jesus. You need to learn Christ and what he wants from you. This is what he wants. First, you need to learn to put off your old self. Disciples are taught, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We are to rid our lives as Christians of any sinful trace of our former way of living, thinking, and acting. If you are a Christian, you are not who you used to be anymore. I want to just say, if you were a child or a teen, saved young at age, You're not who you would have been apart from Christ. The change is there. Sometimes you have to look backwards in the mirror. Sometimes you have to look forward out the windshield. But the change is there. You're a new person. As Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, this is all part of a Christian's sanctification This is what we learned earlier. It's printed in your bulletin. Sanctification refers to the lifetime of change that starts at justification, the moment we're forgiven, and ends with glorification, 
the moment we meet Jesus. When I've taught the teens, I have pictured it like this. What this passage is describing is that middle category, sanctification. And if you say, I want to get all the words on the screen, on the piece of paper in front of me, write really fast or ask me later and I'll send this to you. This right here is where we are, as Paul said to the Philippians, working out our salvation. As Christians, we have been set free from the penalty of sin. Penalty is gone. Jesus took it in our place. We've been set free from the power of sin. Chains of sin have been broken. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from the penalty. We've been set free from the power of sin. We have not yet been set free from the presence of sin. We still feel sinful desires in us. We still deal with temptation every single day. But one day, we will be glorified, finally and forever, delivered not just from the power of sin, but from its very presence. And if these three theological terms are new to you, and you want an easy way to remember them, I encourage the teens to remember, just say God. What are the three promises of salvation? Just say God. Justification, sanctification, glorification. So what areas of life, Christian, do you need to change? What has the Holy Spirit been convicting you about? What habits or lifestyle choices or patterns of behavior do you need to put off? Deal with your unconfessed sin right now. Repent of it and trust Jesus to forgive you. Next, Paul says Christians need to be taught to renew their mind. This is verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Now, there's some debate over whether the word spirit here refers to the human spirit or to the Holy Spirit. I am convinced that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, I agree with Clinton Arnold. He's a professor of New Testament language and literature. When he says, it's therefore best to interpret this passage as referring to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. This is something that God is doing in us, particularly because of statements earlier in the book of Ephesians about the Holy Spirit point to the Spirit's involvement here. So like back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul prays that the Spirit will bring them to wisdom and revelation in knowing Christ better. It's an activity of the mind, renewing of the mind. In Paul's prayer in chapter 3, verse 16, He asked the Father to strengthen them with power through his Spirit in their inner selves, which would again include the mind. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does in reversing the corruption of sin. We used to, look back at verse 17, we used to walk in the futility of our minds, but now by the Holy Spirit's enablement, verse 23, we are renewed in our minds. And the Holy Spirit renews our minds by using the Word of God, which is the Bible. For minds darkened by sin, we go to the Bible. As Psalm 119, 130 puts it, the unfolding of God's word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And one of our responsibilities as Christians is to fill our minds with God's word and meditate on it and to trust the Holy Spirit to change our thinking and change our attitudes. So you need to renew your mind. You also need to put on the new self. When Paul writes there in verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, he is indicating that Christians are recreated humanity. And it was at this point in my sermon preparation that I was like, do I take them back to Genesis and work through the entire Bible? I decided not to, so I hope you're not disappointed. 
God originally made humans in his own image so that we would reflect and represent the creator in the creation. Humanity was created by God to be mirrors, reflecting God's character in the world and pointing back to him. The intrusion of sin ruined humanity's ability to image God. And we became like broken, shattered mirrors. And our actions now actually distort and pervert God's character. Hence, the wickedness and the brokenness in our world. But now in Christ, Christians are new creations. We are, in a very real sense, recreated humanity. And as we are being sanctified, we are being progressively changed and transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, into men and women who perfectly mirror and reflect God's righteousness and holiness. So now the command Paul is giving is, be what you are. Live out your new identity. Your status before God because of Jesus is now righteous and holy. Not because you earned it, you didn't. Jesus did in your place. And what you earned, he took in your place. That's your status before God, is righteous and holy because you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's your status. And it's time for your behavior and your life to catch up with who you now are. Be what you are. Be who you have been redeemed to be. Be done with the sin that has plagued and infected your life. You're free of that. Live in freedom. So I want to ask just a few questions for reflection. Do you sense areas of your life that the Holy Spirit is convicting you about, but which you have been resisting? This is just for your own personal reflection. And if you do, what is holding you back from dealing with them? Lots of things get in the way of us dealing with our sin like we should. Sometimes it's complacency or procrastination. Sometimes it's shame or fear. Sometimes it's stubbornness or just plain deception. We've, we've simply swallowed Satan's lies, hook, line, and sinker. We've believed the lie that our sin isn't hurting anybody or that it's not really a big deal that we deserve to have a little bit of fun. If you sense that the Holy Spirit is convicting you, submit to his leading. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Second question. Did you realize that God actually expects your life to change after you commit to Jesus? This is actually a very common misconception. Maybe you'd say, I honestly never realized I'm supposed to change. I asked Jesus into my heart a long time ago. The preacher told me I was saved. I didn't realize there was more to it than that. Is it possible that you've been converted but not discipled? Look back at verse 21. Maybe you have not been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And you need to learn Christ. You need to learn who he is. You need to learn what he's done. You need to learn what he taught. You need to learn what he expects. All of it. You should seek Christ for yourself in the Bible, but you should also seek for help. Because that's what the church is for. That's actually the passage before the one we're looking at, verse 15. That's what the church does. The church speaks the truth and love to one another. So if you're like, I actually think I am saved. But honestly, there's been no growth. There's been no change. I, I don't even realize half this stuff. You need the church. You need the church to come alongside you and help you. And that's, a, that's why we're here, is for that. If you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you, submit to his leading. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And if you think 
that I was saved, but I've never been discipled or trained. Pursue Christ in the scriptures and seek help in the church. Third question, do you think that you've only focused on external change so that other people will think better of you? Maybe you've caught on to the basic idea of how Christians are supposed to talk, dress, behave, but it's all an act for you. It's never been a sincere change of heart. In fact, in many ways, you might be like a chameleon. When you're around your Christian friends, you act like a Christian. When you're not, your true colors show. And I would actually especially direct this to um, our teens, to our kids. You've grown up in a home in which you've been taught how to act, what to look like. It's very, very, very common for individuals in the circumstances that you're in to know how to look the part, talk the part, but it's all external. There's nothing internal about it. And I just want to challenge you with the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 7. He said, many will say to me one day, Lord, Lord, Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You might be able to fool other people. You will not fool Jesus. Humble yourself and cry out to Jesus to save you. Fourth question, do you feel like you need to change so that God will accept you? Maybe you'd say, I'm trying to change. I know I've got problems. I'm doing everything I can to clean myself up so God will accept me. Maybe you're about ready to walk out of here saying that all this talk about needing to change just makes me feel so miserable. I came to church to be encouraged. Now I'm more depressed and hopeless than ever. You need to know the good news of Jesus is that salvation is by grace. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So why do Christians pursue change? Because of what God has done. We're not who we used to be anymore. Now we're personal followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. It's our new but permanent status. And now we pursue changed lives to match up with who we now are in Christ. Let's pray.